<laughs> Hooliganism. <laughs> yeah, baby. Hooligan time. Hey, motherfuckers, we're back with my podcast of immense and great proportionately unexquisitely mad shit going on. Hmm? Yes. All right, guys, so um, we're going to do a little something different on this podcast. We're going to do a... um. Well, we're going to we're going to do a little educational uh thing here today on um on drugs. Uh we're going to we're going to go and we're going to uh listen in uh with Hamilton Morris. Uh he's on the Joe Rogan podcast. Um and I'll pause it, you know, momentarily and throughout some of it. Um and I want you guys to really pay attention to what he's saying on a lot of these things because We've had a lot of misconceptions, misconstrued information about uh, psychoactive drugs, psychotherapy, um, and drugs in particular on um, their effects on different um, parts of our body and uh, receptors. So let's listen in with uh, Joe Rogan and uh, Hamilton Morse. By the way, one of my... I look up to Hamilton Morris. He's a great neuroscientist. Um, so uh, let's listen in. Boom. And we're live, Hamilton Morris. Sober as fuck. How about you? Absolutely sober. Yes, this time. So we did a podcast seven years ago, and most people apparently didn't know how fucked up we were. But uh, I figured, damn, we're here with Hamilton Morris. We should go deep. And we just kept hitting that joint till I lost most of my grasp on reality while we're talking <laughs> it was just a very slippery conversation i was just too high to form coherent thoughts it was just whatever i pieced together was just uh it was you know it was almost like miming a conversation <laughs> but now seven years later and you have a new place yeah it's beautiful yeah well you were in the early days we did it at my house yeah that was way 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 back in the day i had no idea really i knew who you were of course but i didn't know about your podcast entirely i'd seen clips of you on youtube and it wasn't until i was driving home from that recording and my phone just filled with hundreds of emails that i realized oh wow this is a, a serious phenomenon that i was not aware of <laughs> and now i see it's just become huge it's a weird thing dude it it's uh it's got the wheel i just sort of have to show up it's a very strange and, and it sounds like um false modesty or something like that but i'm just being totally honest like this thing does itself i think a lot of it might have to do with the long form because yeah. people are so used to seeing people's opinions condensed and filtered into these sound bites and snippets and to hear an extended conversation with someone where they can actually tell stories and articulate their opinions in a nuanced careful way is so rare i agree um it's one of the reasons why i now, I like that uh, that part right there. That's one of my um, favorite parts about this uh, episode is 
the fact that you get to sit and uh, have conversation, the, you know, um, I don't like, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 minute uh, interviews to get to know, you know, a person, their business, you know, what they're about. It, it's just really hard to get to know somebody, you know, um, you've got to be, you can uh, form a basis of how you perceive that person uh, and how you assume to be that person to be. But um, in reality, you know, 30, 45 minutes just is not, you know, long enough to get to um, really, truly understand uh, where someone's coming from with their um, opinions or, you know, articulate thoughts or whatnot. So uh, I thought that was a great point. So um, let's take a quick break. Um, and uh, we'll get right back in a second, okay, guys? Peace. All right, motherfuckers. We're back. Oh, dicks. All right, guys. So, uh, <coughs> we're just joining in. We're uh, going to go over the uh, history and the uh, effects of... Uh, Drugs, pharmaceutical, uh, all drugs, uh, drug history, basically. Uh, so we're listening with um, on the Joe Rogan podcast. Love this episode, guys. Great episode with um, Lynn uh, Hamilton Morris. Um, so Morris Hamilton. Uh, Neuroscientist, very educated, so let's see what he's got. Here we go. Let's continue on with the education. Don't do those shows anymore, like panel shows and things like that. It's yeah. just so frustrating. Oh, it's insane. I have very little experience with that. All right. We're getting to it. Let me take a pinch here. <laughs> Here we go. Sort of thing, but I did Dr. Oz um, <laughs> last year. The worst ones. Yes. And I don't know how any normal person could function in that sort of environment. I mean, I have a TV show, so arguably I'm well-trained for that sort of thing. But unless you're an actor who's prepared a line to say as soon as they point at you, there's no way that you could function because it's not a genuine conversation. It's just an opportunity to launch one sentence sound bites and then audience applause. Yeah, and also the audience is such a strange element to add to a conversation. I mean, if you and I were having this conversation exactly in this, this room, but to the left of us is an enormous group of people. We would feel weird. We would have to address them. We'd have to turn to them. It, it would be odd. The following illuminated applause and yeah. laughter signs. Oh, God, those are the weirdest. When the, there's always the warm-up guy who's like, okay, everybody, we're coming back from break. We're coming back from break. And they hold up the sign, applause, 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 and everybody goes crazy. And they create the worst environment. I was on this uh, discussion about Kratom. Are you familiar with this? I'm this? on it right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just took some. I, I fucked my knee up the other day. I did something, and uh, it's been stiff and painful so i iced it before i came here and then i just took uh took six of them see what happens wow took it, 10 once oof 10 one ten gram pills? capsules yeah i don't know how much i don't know can you grab that bag there's a bag that's sitting right on the sink 
I'll tell you exactly what's in it. But uh, now I get why people might think it's a drug. What is a drug? Yeah, for sure. But when I took four, I was like, well, I took two for the first time I took it, I took two. And then a couple times I took two. And I'm like, this is like a mild stimulant. But then when you get into the range of eight to ten pills, it's like, oh, this will fuck you up, this stuff. The stuff I take is Urban Ice Organics and, um, see, it says, it says take two. It doesn't say the amount of material in the capsule. What does it say there? 750 milligrams. Okay. So not quite a gram. Not quite a gram. All right. That seems like a, a reasonable amount. But they always construct these things in these ridiculous, dramatic oppositions. Like it was me versus a woman whose son had died of some Kratom-associated overdose. And, you know, it, it turned... Okay. To clarify, when they say Kratom, it, they're talking about Kratom. Okay. So we People say Kratom. It's Kratom. So... ...into a thing like, well, what do you have to say to this woman whose son died... It's like, I don't know. You know, there are people that die from caffeine overdoses as well. It's tragic that this happens. Have people died from this? Yes. They How have much do you have to take? An enormous amount. I mean, I think a lot of people set up these unrealistic expectations with these drugs where they, if they like a drug, they want to say, it's impossible right. for it to kill anyone. It's right. impossible. There's no possible right. way. If you set that as your standard, you'll always fail because right. people will die doing absolutely everything. Running, having sex, defecating. Aspirin. Aspirin, absolutely. There's nothing in this world that can't find its way into a human death. So if people want to say, and even, you know, cannabis, obviously, people say you can't overdose on cannabis, and essentially you can't. But if you look in the medical literature, there are a number of these cannabis-associated fatalities. You know, you can debate them endlessly, but the point is once a drug enters a large enough population, there'll be a number of sensitive individuals and someone will die. It doesn't mean that the drug is dangerous. It means that it's unrealistic to set a standard where if anything bad happens to anyone, we have to decide that the drug is dangerous and should be banned. Yeah. Good point there. Um, and I have looked that up in uh, in the literature, and you can argue it all you want. It, it is there. It's. I, I mean, you know, there's no, you know, it is what it is. But uh, like he said, anything if you if we set our standards to that that's just, just you know so here we go i agree i mean look water kills people there's a lot of these uh, hazing things where the fraternity kids will be asked to drink a shit ton of water and oh, yeah. people have died from it a woman died in san jose a few years back from a uh contest to, to drink water to get her son like an xbox or something like that yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of things that are lethal, but the LD50 for cannabis is like, I mean, you literally have to smoke your body weight or something, right? It's something crazy. It would be very difficult. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you couldn't get so high that you did something really stupid and wind up dying. Right. Yeah, especially dependent upon the person and the, the, the you know, or biological from, variabilities. Right, right, exactly. And it's just, I think it's also just a sort of a bad road to go down. People always want to emphasize the safety of things, right. but in my opinion, safety isn't the point. It doesn't ultimately matter to me whether or not something is safe. I think we should have the freedom to do dangerous things if we choose. We're allowed to ride motorcycles. We're allowed to shoot guns. You're allowed to go skydiving and bungee jumping. All those things. 
carry risks, but it's assumed that any adult that does them is aware of those risks. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's also who is, if the, the society that we live in was just you and I, was the, we were the only two people alive, who are you to tell me what I can do or me to tell you what you can do? It's ridiculous. And so when you have grown adults, telling a grown adult who's informed what they can and can't do, then it becomes a, a question of children. Well, then it becomes a an, an education issue and it becomes a parental issue. I mean, it's just... You can't lie to your children about the effects of certain drugs because then they're not going to believe you about the really actual, the actual dangerous ones. Right. And this is, of course, reflected in the, the so-called opioid epidemic. Yes. Right now. Yes. There's endless finger pointing. Everyone wants to find a culprit that's behind all of it. And the easiest person to blame, of course, are pharmaceutical companies because everybody hates pharmaceutical companies. So why not blame them? Right. But, you know, and I'm not pro pharmaceutical by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm also not anti-pharmaceutical either. And when you look at the way, for example, the New York Times is covering the opioid epidemic, it's always in this tone of like documents were uncovered that show that executives at Purdue Pharma were aware that morphine was addictive as early as 1999. It's like, well, of course, of course they were aware. People have known that morphine is addictive for hundreds of years. This is old news. And this whole idea that doctors were convinced by some letter in the New England Journal of Medicine that said that OxyContin isn't addictive is absurd. These are all morphine derivatives. Any adult, especially a medically trained adult, should know that no matter what little variation you make on that molecule, if it's structurally and pharmacologically and qualitatively similar to morphine, of course it's going to be addictive. And Bam. Did you hear that? That was a very, very good point. Point, ladies and gentlemen, that right there. Listen, look, we've had our, we've all looked at things in the way that we've formulated our own uh, opinions. Fine, that's great. But when it comes down to it, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of this stuff that's going on, we act surprised like we don't know and da da da. And like he said, I'm not pro-pharmaceutical, but I'm not anti-pharmaceutical either. I mean, there's certain things that, you you know, um, I just think that there's, um, there's a lot of things that people need to step back and realize and, and understand and look in their cells before they, they, uh, or we start throwing these assumptions and assuming and, and bashing and da da da. I don't like uh, pharmaceutical companies and, and because A, because we can't negotiate with them and, and they can change prices. So we're going to take another quick break here and um, we'll get back in just a second. All right, fuckos. All right. All righty, all righty, all righty. We're here to tell you special things. All right, fuckers. We're back. Bean. Hooligan. Burn down with Bean. Listening to me, Anchor, bam, get the app, listen to it, boom, free. Ah. All right, guys, back here now, um, Hamilton Morris, Joe Rogan, listening, drug history, here we go. Let's get back to it, fuckos. That in and of itself isn't even a bad thing. It should be okay to give people addictive drugs as well, as long as everyone's aware of the risks. As long as they understand a protocol to get off of it. You, you, you know, there's so many people that, get on these things and then wind up taking them far longer than they're supposed to because it's easy to, to get hooked. I mean, we need to at least have some sort of responsible d- 
direction that these people need to go to to get off of them once they're on them. Because people that get uh, back operations, any, anything where they prescribe you uh, high doses of uh, opiates, it's a huge problem. I know many, many people that have gotten hooked because of it. And in fact, I should tell you that my good friend Justin Wren, his wife found out about Kratom because of you, because oh. of your show. He um, had a problem with his shoulder, got shoulder surgery. They put him on Oxycontins. He was fucked up on them, and he was having a really hard time getting off it, having the shakes really bad, and Kratom is the only thing that got him off of it. Right, and that's not surprising. I mean, this has been known for a very long time in Thailand, and that was actually the reason that it was originally prohibited. I don't know if you're aware of that, but because the government taxed opium um, and people started using Kratom, then they made Kratom illegal. Is that the right way to say it? Because people say Kratom. Yeah. You're the only one I've heard say Kratom. People in, it's a Thai word. People in Thailand call it Kratom. Oh, okay. So okay. people in the U.S. call it Kratom. It's, I, it's also they have, you know, it's maybe it's like Kratom. So they right. like, I'm not going to go that far. Right, right, but right, Kratom right. is closer. If you did, it would be weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I'm> not, <laughs> but I feel, as you know, yeah. Like American people that say Ecuador, <laughs> Argentina. But it is Kratom. Yeah. Kratom, okay. So we'll try to call it Kratom. Or something close to that. It's closer yeah. to that than Kratom. Right. And so the reason why it was made illegal was because of the fact that it was pinching some of the profits off of the opium trade. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's fucked up. And so this has been known for a long time that it helps people get off more addictive opioids. And How does it do that? Well, it's an opioid itself, and a lot of people don't want to admit or acknowledge that, but I think we need to get beyond this idea that drugs are inherently bad or opioids are inherently bad just because the ones that we're aware of have a lot of problems. You know, in some sense, medicinal chemistry and pharmacology and all of this are still in a very primitive state, and there's so much to be learned. So we're mostly giving people these derivatives of morphine that have been around for 100 years, and there are better things. We're going to continuously discover less addictive treatments for pain. And I think that the alkaloids in Kratom are a step in that direction, and in, which is so tragic that they're trying to now make it illegal because this is something that, as far as I can tell, has genuinely helped an enormous number of people reduce their intake of more addictive and more dangerous opioids. Well, one of the things that I felt, I mean, and again, my dose was not extremely high, but when I was on it, I was very coherent. I was clear, it was clear to me that I was affected by something, but uh, it felt kind of good. It didn't feel bad. It felt uh, a little, uh, a little uneasy, like a little like, whoa, this the world feels a little weird right now. But it did not feel like uh, I was impaired. Like I know a lot of people who take it and exercise. Like uh, I have a friend; he'll take ten pills and exercise. It just, just seems kind of fucking crazy. <laughs> yes, but he says he has a great workout. Right, by taking that stuff before he works out. Yeah, I mean, it seems to lend itself to a lot of different applications. In Thailand, it's used almost exclusively for that sort of purpose. In the South, it's a, a drug that laborers use so that they can, you know, collect the latex from rubber trees and just get their job done. That's what it's about. I mean, that's what opioids are about for a lot of the world, um, both in the United States and in Africa and in Thailand, is, you know, people live hard lives and and manual labor is painful and repetitive and difficult, and anything that makes that a little bit more manageable is a very important tool for humans. I always felt like people that did heroin or opiates or something like that were on a very short road to death. 
That, that was my perception when I was a kid. And then I had a friend who was a longshoreman. They uh, worked on the docks. Bring, they would bring fish in and uh, fillet the fish for the market. And um, he worked with a guy that every day at lunch, the guy would go cop. He would get his heroin. He would shoot it up in his car. And then he'd go back to work. And I was like, he'd go back to work. And you're like, yep, he worked every day. Like, every day he shot up and every day he worked. Like, yeah. He was never late. Nope. Just did his work. Like, right. wow. Well, I didn't think you could do that. I thought you did heroin. The next thing you know, you'd just be on the floor in a fetal position in your own urine. And See, we get those personas. Now, look, it does have that effect on people. We know that. I've got a friend that, that is addicted to heroin. And... But here's the thing. He's addicted to it, but he will get high and go and work. But there's sometimes where when he's off, he doesn't. And he just, you know, it's really odd. It's really odd, people. Strange. Strange things. Let's check back in. You just would fall apart and die. Right. Yeah, there's this idea that people sometimes refer to as pharmacological determinism, that a certain drug has to do a certain thing. So alcohol has to sedate and disinhibit you. Heroin has to addict you and make you a slave to it and kill you. Cocaine has to be a euphoric thing that's done at parties that's also very addictive. PCP has to make you strip nude and run around um, fighting cops and fighting cops and yeah. punching holes and wooden fences um but when you look at this you know anthropologists have looked at certain drugs that are used cross-culturally like alcohol and what you find is this whole idea of pharmacological determinism is fundamentally flawed drugs behave differently in different cultures depending on the set and setting of the user and so you find all sorts of instances that are major exceptions to these rules that we've set up for these various drugs. For example, PCP, which is arguably one of the most ubiquitously maligned drugs in the world. I mean, no one can imagine that PCP is medicinal, but even to this day, PCP is in Schedule 2, not Schedule 1, like cannabis and LSD Schedule 2. It can still be prescribed, actually, and that's because it had a history of medicinal use. There was even PCP psychotherapy in the UK in the, in the 50s. So, this is uh, something that most people wouldn't believe, but to those patients that were taking it then, there was none of this cultural association with PCP being a drug that causes psychosis or makes you strip nude. It was simply another tool for a psychiatrist to use and help people release repressed memories or traumas that they were afraid to talk about when sober. Mm. Well, we're seeing that now with MDMA, right? I mean, and also ketamine. Ketamine use, being used as an, an actual tool for psychotherapy, particularly for people with depression, it's having really good results. My uh, my friend, <clears throat> excuse me, Neil Brennan, uh, who's a hilarious comedian, he's had struggles with depression. He had, he got great relief from uh, from taking ketamine. Right, and what I think is really interesting is you know this is often packaged as a sort of psychedelic renaissance, but I think in a larger context, it's a drug-facilitated psychotherapy renaissance because this was not just limited to psychedelics. People did something called narcoanalysis where they would give people um, sedatives like propofol, the drug that killed Michael Jackson, or um, various barbiturates or 
various other drugs and the relaxing effect would allow people to talk more openly to a therapist and it was considered very effective. Now this idea of a, a psychiatrist injecting you with a drug in order to help you talk about your problems is it's unheard of. I don't think anyone does it anymore, but it used to be very common. And I think a return to that is going to be really beneficial. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the right drugs with the right cases and the right people. And I think we've got to get past these schedules that when you have things like marijuana and psilocybin and, and especially DMT, which your own body produces is a schedule one drug in the famous Terrence McKenna line. We're all holding you know, with, when it comes to DMT, it's just stupid. It's just, it's stupid that these things are Schedule 1. When you're saying there's no medical benefit whatsoever or medical application for cannabis, it's fucking crazy. When some, I mean, you want to have something that really actively promotes a distrust in law enforcement. The scheduling of drugs is one of the best ones. Because when you look at something like marijuana and you see that that's a Schedule 1 drug, that, that, that's infuriating to people that gain huge benefits from cannabis. I mean, people that have going through chemotherapy, people that have, you know, uh, interocular pressure from glaucoma. I mean, you can go down the list over and over and over again. Kids that have epilepsy. There's so many people that have had great benefit, for, particularly from edible cannabis, from people that have seizures. I mean, you could keep going on and on and on. It's just, it's an amazing plant. And to have that demonized because of some ridiculous propaganda from the 1930s that still somehow or another clung on in 2018. We think about all the information we have now with the internet and the fact that cannabis is still schedule one you have assholes like jeff sessions still saying things like good people don't smoke marijuana like this is crazy talk it's crazy but keep in mind it was just about a, a hundred years ago that alcohol was prohibited in the united states and it took 13 years to reverse that and that was alcohol there's no drug more integrated into our culture than alcohol and that took 13 years to reverse what was that like back then that must have been madness when alcohol was illegal, when the cops would come in and jackbooted thugs would knock over gin mills and bust open kegs of whiskey and spill it all out. Like, what the fuck was that like? It was, it was disastrous, but I think what's interesting about that is it was a worthwhile experiment. To give them the benefit of the doubt, it was worthwhile to see. Because on some sense, you could say the prohibition has a certain logic to it. You could say drugs cause problems, so if we just make all the drugs illegal then maybe those problems will disappear. Mm. But it didn't work. The experiment failed. And there's nothing wrong with a failed experiment, but it's a problem if you keep repeating it over and over and over again for 100 years looking for a different result. Right. And then go to other drugs and go, well, this one. Let's try this one. Let's make this one illegal. And it's a terrible PR situation for the police as well. If I were a police officer, I would be the biggest opponent of the war on drugs in, of anyone in the government. Because when you think about why does the average person in New York City love a firefighter? They love firefighters, but they hate cops. Why is that? It's because of the drug war. Because a firefighter isn't going to hurt you for something that wasn't really a crime to begin with, for some kind of victimless crime. A firefighter is just there to help you, to save you if you're in trouble. And the same would be true of police officers if it weren't for the drug war, ideally. There's a little more complexity to it. Sure, than that. there's certain...